Yeah, it's, uh, it's fun to actually stand on the stage and look at the person who's making the intro of you. Keeps them, uh, keeps them honest and accurate. Uh, hey, almost Merry Christmas to everybody. It's really fun to be with the Antioch family. And I don't pray for snow, so I don't know what Evan was talking about. Uh, keep it in the mountains, right? Um, hey, uh, I, I want to reflect a little bit on, uh, on this concept of Prince of Peace. Obviously, it's something that I've given uh, my life to. And uh, it's really, really fun to be able to be in a space where I get to talk very freely about the one I love and the one I follow. Uh, and, and the Prince of Peace is such a profound term. And um, wh- what I want to debunk right away is that this is not a term um, that we would use to describe a Jesus who was a hippie guru who walked around and told people to be nice. Uh, that's not a Prince of Peace. Why? Because you, know, you don't get crucified for saying be nice. You get crucified when you upset systems, when you disrupt the status quo of pseudo-peace. That's what gets you crucified. Right? And so I want to invite us to think about a Jesus that's maybe a little bit different than the dreadlocked, tie-dye-wearing uh, VW bus, which is my dream car, uh, driving Jesus when we think about uh, the Prince of Peace. I want to start in 2005. Uh, 2005, there was, a, um, there was a massive earthquake in northern Pakistan. It was a, it was a 7.2, uh, 80,000 people died in a day. Three million people were left homeless in the Himalayas. It was winter. It was coming. They would be buried under 40 feet of snow. I read an article about this at my cafe in San Francisco, and something inside of me broke open. Now, that's something that had happened to a certain degree for me before. Like, you know, when you, when you read something or you view something or you experience something and something kind of shatters open inside of you that feels unexplainable? Uh, that was my experience. I'm sitting in this, in this cafe, I'm sipping my cappuccino, I, I'm reading this article and something is shattering inside of me and it was, um, it was different than, than ever, uh, ever before. And so, uh, so I called two mentors because this, this experience was so foreign to me and, I, and I, I called the first mentor and I said, hey look, I'm, I'm in this cafe, I'm reading about an earthquake in northern Pakistan and something is breaking open inside of me. What do I do? And he says, well, it sounds like Jesus is doing something in your life. I think you need to go to Pakistan. Which was the last thing in the world I expected my mentor to say. Why? Because I'm a U.S. American Christian and I've actually been trained to stay safe. So he's actually saying, it seems like Jesus is doing something in your life. And rather than saying, here's how you retreat and put back together the pieces that are broken open inside of you, he's saying, you need to step further into the pain. Get closer to it. He says, I, I think I might have a contact in northern Pakistan that, uh, that if you could find a way to get over there, I think we could get you into the country. Now, keep in mind, Pakistan is not a tourist destination. At that point, it was a closed country, and it was very, very challenging for people like me just to get into Pakistan. So somewhat intrigued, but mostly dissatisfied with his input, I called the second mentor. And, and my second mentor says, uh, says, yeah, it sounds like Jesus is doing something in your life. It sounds like you need to go to Pakistan two for two. And so he says, if you have a contact over there, I'll fund your trip. And so three and a half weeks later, I had an expedited Pakistani visa in my passport and I was on my way to Pakistan. Now keep in mind, I knew absolutely nothing about Pakistan. I couldn't have pointed Pakistan out on a globe to you. I didn't have Pakistani friends. I didn't have Muslim friends. Here are the two things I knew about Pakistan. Number one, I really like their food a lot. And number two, this was enemy territory. 
Keep in mind, this is 2005. This is four years in the wake of 9-11 when airplanes crashed into buildings in New York City. The mastermind in the form of Osama bin Laden is known to be in the tribal villages of northern Pakistan among the Tora Bora Caves. Do you want to know where the epicenter of that earthquake was? The Tora Bora Caves. All I knew about Pakistan is that this is enemy territory and that public enemy number one lived in the tribal villages up north. That was the place I landed into, Islamabad International Airport. Now, I get to fly all over the place all of the time, but I've never had an armed escort from a plane to baggage claim. But that's what happens. So now I, I have my backpack and I'm being escorted to baggage claim. And when I get my bags, there's a, there's a little Pakistani man standing there holding a sign with my name on it. And so I got in his car. And here's the reality. When we say yes to following Jesus and then actually follow Jesus, we have no idea where we'll end up. You have no idea what corner of the global village you'll find yourself in. You have no idea whose home you're going to find yourself in or whose car you're going to find yourself in. So I got in his car and he drove me eight hours to the north and he dropped me off at a UN helipad. Now, I'm not sure if he was supposed to do that or if that's just literally where the road took him. I didn't know what I was going to be doing. All I had was a contact with an NGO. But he dropped me off at a helipad. So what do you do when you get dropped off at a helipad? You get in a helicopter, right? And so like this UN chopper lands at the helipad and the guy looks at me and nods. And so I nod back and I got in his chopper. <laughs> so now I'm flying. I'm flying to the top of the Himalayas. Now, again, as someone from the United States and, and someone whose parents loved the national parks and took us to all of them, you know, I loved the mountains. I had seen the Rockies. I had hiked them. I now live among the Cascades and they're really beautiful. The Himalayas are real mountains, y'all. And so now I'm in this helicopter and I'm flying above the Himalayas. And I'm looking out of the window of this chopper and I'm asking one very significant question. How did I get here? So I take my journal out and I begin to write because that's how I think. That's how I begin to process just crazy stuff that, that is happening real time. So I'm writing down as the chopper begins to descend and we land in this little village called Jaba. Jaba was about four kilometers from the epicenter of this earthquake. I get out and there's a Pakistani general who met me. And he looked at the notebook in my hand. And then he looked at me and he said, my name is Mumtaz. How long are you here? I said, I'll be here for about four weeks. He says, your job for the next four weeks will be to serve as the communications liaison between the Pakistani military, the United Nations, and the tribal villages of northern Pakistan. And I said, I'm a 25-year-old bloke from California. And so with all of my vast training in international diplomacy, right? I just literally said, okay. Now what that meant was for the next four weeks, I sat at a fire with Mumtaz. And together, Mumtaz and I would listen to the, these sets of village elders as they would come in and tell us what happened when the earth shook. We listened to the stories of 157 sets of village elders. Now keep in mind, where the epicenter of this earthquake was, it was, as I said, a 7.2. It meant that the earth shook at a 7.2 rate for over a minute. And we live in the, they, they live in this place where the, their homes are, they're made out of mud and, and rock. 
And so the stories that Mumtaz and I heard were stories of entire bloodlines wiped out. Why? Because all of their family lived under one roof. And when the earth shakes like that, roofs collapse and wipe out entire families. These are the stories I'm listening to now. My job was to sit there and listen and then through translation make notes on what, what, what they thought they needed in, in terms of buildings, what they thought they needed to make it through the winter. And then when the United Nations commander was able to land in Jabba, I would just go and negotiate as hard as I could for the supplies that were needed so that we could distribute it to people who were in need so that they would live through the winter. It's unbelievable. But along the way, I started making friendships I started building relationships with my enemy. Keep in mind, it's not just Pakistanis who were my constructed enemy. That's all I had been fed for four years since 9-11. It's not just Pakistanis, it's Arab Muslims in general. They're a very violent people who want nothing more than the demise of U.S. Americans and specifically U.S. American Christians. That's all I had been told since buildings crumbled in New York City. But now I'm in this remote little village in enemy territory, building relationships with my enemy. And I gotta tell you, it was an amazing journey in a very short amount of time to go from enemy to acquaintance, acquaintance to friend, and from friend to family. It's, it's next to impossible to, to hang out with these kids and watch them play and listen to their stories and capture some of their fears and some of their hopes and some of their dreams and not go, wow, these are image bearers of God, just like me. So while it was the earth that shook in northern Pakistan, it was my theology that started to shatter. You see, everything that I had been told about who God is, what God did in Jesus, what God is up to right now, all of it started to uh, be dismantled. My understanding of who is my enemy and what it is that I'm supposed to do with my enemy, all of it is just shattering. I'm the one that's being undone and remade. It's extraordinary. There's this one moment in particular, I'll never forget it. I was standing by this little creek with Shakur. Shakur was a second lieutenant in the Pakistani military. And it was, the, it was a time for the afternoon prayers. And so the imam, the guy with the orange beard that you just saw, this guy, what he would do is he would crawl up onto the rubble of the mosque and he would sing out the call to prayer. Now, there's no electricity where we are. And as far as they were concerned, in terms of the historians of Jabba, I was the first U.S. American and probably the first Christian in the history of the world to be where I was. That's how remote this place was. And so here's this imam, when it's called to prayer time, he'd, he'd climb up on the rubble of the mosque and he would sing out this call to prayer. And I'm standing by this creek with Shakur. And when it was all done, I said, hey, Shakur, I would love to understand what's being prayed there. And so he translates it out in English, and so I write it down in my journal. And then when I'm done uh, writing it down, he says, well, why don't you teach me one of your prayers? So I taught him the Lord's Prayer, right? And he writes it down in English, Kohistani, and Urdu. Kind of a cool moment. But then I went back to my tent that evening, and I memorized their prayer. Why? Because this is a moment of this is a moment of worship. It's a sacred moment uh, in time with people who are becoming friends. And so I wanted to be able to actually step into a moment of prayer as well. Why? Because this people was desperate for God to usher in a new reality. And so the next day I'm standing in the same place with Shakur 
the imam stands up on the rubble and sings out the call to prayer. And when he's done, I recited it word for word in English and Shakur said this, huh, not bad. And then word for word in English, he recites the Lord's Prayer. You see, unbeknownst to each other, two guys who were supposed to be enemies but had become brothers went back to their own tents, memorized each other's prayer to honor but also to step into a moment of worship with one another. See, your, your theology starts to get shattered when you find yourself in enemy territory. The great surprise is that I was found and formed by God in enemy territory in relationship with all of the wrong people, which is the antithesis of what I had been taught as a U.S. American dominant culture Christian. You see, what I had been taught is you are found and formed by God when you sit in safety in homogenous cloisters with one another with people who are just like you. That's where you'll be found and formed by God. Turns out it's not true. Turns out if you want to be found informed by God, you don't stay in safety. You move into the margins. Now, here's the, this is the moment that changed my life. I'm sitting there. Um, this is Zagum. He's one of the, the second lieutenants. And now here's Mumtaz. So Mumtaz and I got real friendly with each other. And uh, we're sitting there the last day I'm in Jabba. At that point, we had listened to 156 sets of village elders tell us what happened when the earth shook. This 157th set of village elders began to creep its way into the village, which was different. But what was also different is they were creeping into the village with their guns raised, which meant that all of my friends from Jabba instantly raised their machine guns. Now, everybody over there carries Russian-era uh, Kalashnikov machine guns like we carry cell phones. And so I'd gotten used to the presence of that many guns in, uh, in my face. I just hadn't experienced them pointed in my face. This was very, very different. It was hot. It was intense. It was terrifying. They were pointing guns at each other, but they were also pointing guns at Mumtaz and I. I remember Mumtaz looking at me, kind of thinking like, you're the U.S. American. You've got us, right? And I'm looking at him saying, you're the Pakistani general. You've got us, right? And I don't think we had each other at all. It was terrifying. And so at an armed escort, my friends from Jabba bring this new set of village elders to the fire and they sit down and have a four-hour screaming match. Through translation, I begin to understand that these two villages had been in civil war for over 30 years. That over 30 years ago, something had happened that had caused them for 30 years to kill each other's kids. What was fascinating to me is that none of them could remember what it was that actually happened. Maybe somebody killed somebody's goat or somebody's kid, or maybe they chopped a tree in the wrong place. Maybe it was intentional. Maybe it was accidental. Who knows? What we know is 30 years of death and violence had passed such that they couldn't even remember what it was that, would, that had happened. And before we, you know, excuse ourselves from like this big international reality, this is the same thing that we do interpersonally. You and I have a conflict 15 months ago. And, and as time goes by and as we begin to write stories about one another and how cruel and, and evil and narcissistic and whatever it is you want to say, as we begin to write these stories, we actually go further and further apart from each other relationally. And as time goes by, all of a sudden I'm here 15 months later. I don't remember what happened. All I know is I hate you and I want to win. 
That plays out in our marriages. That plays out in our, in our workspaces. That plays out in our neighborhoods. That plays out in, around our, our dinner tables. Happens all the time, right? So this is just a little bit bigger, right? We've got 30 years of civil war of people killing each other's kids. By the end of the conversation, they're beginning to make a set of agreements. Here's why. The village, that, the village elders that came in with, with their guns up, they understood that the only place in the area that the helicopter landed was in the space of their enemy. They, they understood that the only way they were going to make it through the winter is if somehow they brokered peace with their enemy. So while they came in with their guns up, they came in with their guns up because there was a track, a record of, of, of violence. They didn't know what would happen if they showed up in that particular village. But what they knew needed to happen is that somehow they needed to broker peace with their enemies so that their families would survive. And so Mumtaz looks at me and he says, with ultimate seriousness, I need you to draft a peace treaty. And so again, with all of my vast experience of international diplomacy and peace negotiations, I said, okay. I took out my notebook and I began to write down the agreements that were being made by these two villages. Here's what was fascinating. Some of the agreements that they were making were regarding what happened. They started to make commitments to one another about how they needed together to address what was it that happened 30 years ago? And what has it cost us? And what are the reparations that we actually need to offer one another in order to make it right? You see, they knew that they were brokering peace in that moment, but a brokered peace treaty did not mean restoration in the relationship. They would have a whole bunch of work to do on the flip side. And so through a bunch of different iterations and revisions, Mumtaz looked at me and he said, okay, where do I sign? And so I said, right here? And he signed it. And then this village elder signed it, then this village elder signed it, and then I signed it, and then the United Nations commander signed it, and here's what I watched happen. A, a set of village elders that came in at gunpoint now walked out of the village, no longer at gunpoint. And that is the moment where the gospel went HD for me, friends. That is the moment I realized that in Jesus, God had waged a decisive peace, and it worked. And it meant that people who weren't going to make it were going to make it now. But I also recognized something else. You see, I had gotten to be a part of that. It wasn't like God had just snapped God's fingers or waved God's magic wand and there was peace between two warring tribes. No, like I actually was there and I got to be a part of that. And so while the gospel looks like God waging peace in Jesus, that peace becomes real as we actually put our presence in the game. It requires something of us. It's the adventure that we've been saved into. Later that afternoon, uh, it was my time to leave the village. And so the imam and Mumtaz and the United Nations commander took me outside of the village to pray a blessing over me. And, and as they blessed me, they literally commissioned me to go home to my own neighborhood and live locally as I had globally. They had commissioned me to return to a place where the streets were filling with the blood of kids and the tears of their mothers because of gun violence. The imam and the general and the commander commissioned me to return to a place that was divided by ethnicity and economics and creeds and sexual orientations to live locally like I had just lived globally. And I'll be honest, up until that point in my life, no pastor had ever commissioned me to live that way. It's the first time. So I hiked off that mountain. 
A day later, I got onto an airplane and I was more uncomfortable than I had ever been in my life. I, I was experienced just a, a state of disequilibrium, dissonance. Nothing made sense anymore. And again, as a U.S. American dominant culture Christian, I've been trained that when you feel uncomfortable, it's probably a sign that something wrong has happened and you need to return to comfort as quickly as possible. As I'm flying home, I'm recognizing this experience of disequilibrium that I was going through was probably an indication that something very right was happening and that my formation would require that I press deeper into the disequilibrium rather than to retreat away from it. Here's what my disequilibrium was. I had encountered a peacemaking God rather than a genocidal warrior God. I had, in, in northern Pakistan, I had encountered a peace, a, a cross-wearing God rather than a cross-wielding God. And that was good news. Everything about the cross and therefore who God is, what God did in Jesus, what God is doing right now, and how I get to join God in that, it was all up for grabs suddenly. And so what do we do as followers of Jesus when everything is suddenly up for grabs, when we experience disequilibrium and dissonance and discomfort? What do we do? We go to the text. We go to the scriptures. We go to Jesus. And we ask Jesus to help us make sense of this. So I had a theodicy in front of me. I had a journey that I needed to take. Now, I knew because my understanding of the cross, the cross was being shattered. Like I, I didn't, because I had been taught that the cross was about personal salvation and the restoration of my human soul and that my job as a faithful Christian was to be moral, be nice, try to convince as many people as possible about the superiority of my God and then ultimately go and be with Jesus for eternity. That's what I'd been taught about the cross. So my, my understanding of the cross is being all shaken up. And so I go to the cross, but I didn't go to the crucifixion stories. Like I kind of understand the chronology of how all that happened. What I wanted to do is I wanted to go to the New Testament authors and understand how they reflected on the implications of the cross. What did the cross do? And that's when I landed in Colossians chapter one. Now, if you read Colossians chapter one, um, Paul is reflecting on the implications of the cross. But he starts this passage in Colossians chapter 1 by reflecting on who Jesus is. And here's what he says. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the pent ultimate expression of what God is like. He writes that God was pleased to dwell in all of his fullness in Jesus. What he's saying is that Jesus is not just another of a long line of revelations about God on equal power with all of them. He's saying Jesus is everything. Jesus is the most accurate. As a matter of fact, Jesus is the accurate representation of who God is. So if you want to know what God thinks about you, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about other people, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about your enemy, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is doing in the world, look at Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. But then he goes on and he says this in verses 19 and 20, that it, that God, it was pleasing to God to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of Jesus on the cross. So Paul is writing that the point of the cross is not just personal salvation and the restoration of the human soul. The cross restored all things. 
everything, the severed relationship between me and God, me and myself, me and you, me and others, me and creation, everything was restored to God through the blood of Jesus on the cross. And if that's true, then yes, our souls are being restored and so much more. The cross, according to Paul, is a declaration of God's love for you and I. We are his beloved image bearers. But it's also an invitation of us to go and live and love and lead. Likewise, Paul is saying on the cross, we understand that God's restorative wingspan was far more expansive and his mending of the divides was far more beautiful than any of us could ever imagine. He's actually getting crystal clear in Colossians chapter 1 that restoration is the mission of God. And friends, if restoration is the mission of God, then that makes God a peacemaker. That makes God a peacemaker. Now, when did God become a peacemaker? And what did that look like? Before I go there, oftentimes when I'm, when I'm speaking in the United States, this is the moment in the talk where most people go, all right, like, come on. Peace and peacemaking, it's nice and idealistic and hypothetical and so on and so forth. And part of that is because peacemakers in our country have always been relegated to the fringes of society where they are uninfluential. Or, on the other hand, we live in a country where peacemakers are not people, they're bombs. We literally have bombs named peacemakers. So this is usually the moment where people are like, all right, this Jared guy has been all right up until this point, but he's probably a progressive liberal kooky guy. No, I I think there's a lot that we can unpack with regard to God, peace, and peacemaking. Now let me frame this up a little bit. Oftentimes in the ancient communities, when um, when they think about peace or shalom, they think about a, a vessel that's been broken and has been put back together. It's usable again. And while I like that, I actually love the Japanese understanding of it a bit better. You see, the Japanese have this form of art called kintsugi. And in kintsugi, a a, a vessel is broken like this and it's put back together. But it's not just put back together such that you can't see the cracks anymore. In kintsugi art, it's actually put together and then the cracks are healed in gold. That means that this vessel right here is actually stronger and more beautiful than before it was broken. That's the imagery of shalom, of peace that I believe that our God is all about. Our God doesn't just put things back together. Our God is putting things back together such that they're stronger and more beautiful than before they were broken. That the scars are not so much a reminder of what was broken. The scars are actually a reminder of the restoration of the peace that is real between us. Now, if God is this great Kintsugi artist or if God is a peacemaker, the question is, when did God become a peacemaker? When did God have to wage peace? Well, let's go now to the beginning of the story. And if you remember in the beginning of the story, God whose name is peace, that's what the Hebrew folk call him. Shalom is his name. God whose name is peace. Why is God peace? Because as we understand Father, Son, Spirit, they actually function together as the the most beautiful, perfect picture of unity. And God, whose name is peace, according to the Genesis story, began to speak creation into being, not because God needed anything, but because God wanted to. Here's why. If God is peace, then the most generous thing that a God whose name is peace could do is to expand creation to share himself with. 
So God creates, not because God needed to, but because God wanted to all the way through the pinnacle of his created order, which is humanity. And then God marks us with his divine fingerprint and exhales his breath into us and brings us to life. And what we find in the very beginning of our story is that the community of God, the community of humanity and creation danced to the rhythm of God's heartbeat. And it was everything it was supposed to be. It was shalom for two chapters. And then what happened? We reached for the fruit of power. And the moment we reached for the fruit of power, all of shalom was shattered. The relationship between me and God, me and myself, me and you, me and others, me and creation, all of the relationships were shattered. And friends, that is the moment when God, whose name is peace, became the great peacemaker. Now, what did that look like? Well, here's the amazing thing about our God. You see, when we shattered shalom, first and foremost, we have a God who saw it. We, had a, uh, we have a God who, who saw the reality of our unreconciled relationships. We, we have a God who saw our, our humanity, our dignity, his image in us. We have a God who saw our pain and our plight. And what God saw didn't cause God to end the story or to walk away. Rather, it became the most important thing in the world to God. And so if you ever hear somebody say, grace doesn't enter the story until the cross, say, uh-uh. Grace enters the story in chapter three of the whole gig. Why? Because God saw the pain and didn't end the story. God, who is the great author, continued to write an epic narrative. So the first thing that we discover about a God who is a peacemaker is that he saw it. And what God saw became the most important thing in the world. God didn't just notice it and remain indifferent to it. God saw it. And then what did God do next? Well, the story tells us that God is now walking in the cool of the garden. And for those of us who were given a construction of God who is a violent, militant warrior God, this posture of a God who is walking in the cool of the garden is not a warmongering God. It is a loving, present God who desires intimacy even with an unreconciled people. So we find God immersed into the radical center of our pain, into the radical center of broken everything. And when God immerses into the story, God doesn't do so with like solutions. What's the first thing God does? God asks a question. He says, where are you? Isn't it something that when God immersed into the middle of the story, God did so with curiosity and compassion? rather than with discipline and solutions. And after God had immersed, where did God find us? We were hiding from each other, y'all. Because once upon a time, in the end of Genesis 1, our full nudity actually was the embodiment of shalom. I want to be this known by you. I want there to be no secrets between us. If we're going to have shalom, that means that you know absolutely everything about me, yet still cherish me. That's a picture of shalom, right? Now when we reach for for the fruit of power and interpersonal relationships are shattered, I no longer want to be this known by you. So now we're going to hide behind our own trees and spend the rest of our lives sowing fig leaves together. Why will that be a lifelong pursuit? Because leaves turn brown. 
and they fall off. So I am literally committing my life to hiding myself from you, to insulating myself from you, from putting on a shiny veneer to make you think that I'm worth stuff. Right? That's where God found us. And then God decides that he's going to contend for us. Like something's got to happen, right? We had to deal with the consequences of our reaching for power, but God's also recognizing your clothes are just going to keep falling off. So God contends for us in a really creative way. You know how he did it? He made us clothes. How do you make us clothes? With animal skins. How do you get animal skins? Something had to die. This is the first moment that death enters the story, but this is also a moment where we understand the cost of restoration. Not so much the penalty, but the cost. Restoration is costly. It's going to cost blood. And then we have a God who says, there's a restoration that's coming. I'm going to restore all of Shalom that you shattered. Now, this, this pattern of God as peacemaker, see, immerse, contend, restore, it doesn't just show up in the garden and then, and then again at the cross. It is a pattern that repeats over and over again throughout the story. If you think about this family in, in, uh, in chains in Egypt, right? They're calling out for liberation. They're calling out for the restoration of their identity as the promised people of God. And we have a God who says, ah, I see you. And now I'm about to immerse into the story again. And then he, he pulled up next to Moses, right? And said, I'm going to invite you to join me in the liberation and the restoration. Why? Because God doesn't snap God's fingers and fix broken things. God always invites the people to be a part of the restoration, right? And so God sees, God immerses, God contends in all sorts of goofy ways within the, in the context of Egypt. And then he sets his people free. They are restored into freedom. But God also recognizes that something far more insidious than the chains of Egypt has warped their souls. A bigger restoration is necessary and it's coming. And then we have this group of people in this wilderness wander. They're on an immigrant journey. And over and again, we have a God who says, I see you. And I'm immersed into your story. I am guiding you along the way. And I'm contending for your flourishing through food and through direction and through formation and all sorts of different ways. And ultimately, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore the shalom that you shattered. And then we get them into exile, right? They find themselves in chains again. And what's the question that the people are asking in chains? How did we get here? How are we God's promised people? How are we in chains again? And then you have a God who says through the prophets, ah, I see you. And now I'm about to immerse into the radical center of your story in a way unlike I ever have before. And when I'm there with flesh on, I'm going to contend at the cost of my own blood and my contending is going to actually bring about the restoration. It's going to restore the shalom. It's going to bring the peace that I promised so long ago. Isaiah says in, in 9 verse 6, he's coming in human form. And then there's 400 years of silence. And then God shows up one more time to an impoverished couple in the northern parts of Galilee. And he says, I see you. And now I'm immersing in the embryonic form of a human child. Why? Because if God is going to bleed so that we can be restored, God first needed to become human. And in the life and teachings of Jesus, we discover a God who contends in all sorts of creative and costly ways. 
And then it's on the cross where we discover that God was going to contend for us, not through military overthrow, but through selfless sacrifice. And so quite literally, God, the Prince of Peace, spent his life on our restoration and the resurrection affirms that it worked. It worked. God waged a decisive peace in the Prince of Peace. Now here's the next question. If God waged such a decisive peace in the Prince of Peace, then why do we still live in a world that's so shattered? Why do we live in a world that feels so divided and so violent? And I'll say, I know I'm a young buck, but listen, in my lifetime, I have never experienced the kind of violence and division that we're experiencing right now. So if the peace that God waged in the Prince of Peace is so decisive, then why are, why are our streets still filling with the blood of kids and the tears of their mothers? Why do we have refugees choosing the uncertainty of water over the violence of land? Why does poverty continue to leave bodies underfed and minds undereducated? If God's peace was so decisive, why do we still find ourselves with migrants living in fear in overcrowded apartments in our neighborhoods here in Bend? Why are there 51 armed conflicts? Let me offer two ideas. Number one, the cross freed us from the power of sin, but not the presence of it. You and I, we continue to reach for the fruit of power and every time we do that, shalom continues to shatter. We do it interpersonally, we do it systemically, we do it through politics, we do it internationally. When we reach for the fruit of power, shalom continues to shatter. Second thought, we've lived most of our lives as followers of Jesus confused about what God's mission is. Now, in a room this size, when I ask the question, what is the mission of God? And if I were to ask you to write it down on an index card, I would probably get as many answers as there are people in the room, which indicates something about our mission confusion. The most common response I'll get is love. Love is the mission of God. Frankly, I disagree. Love is not the mission of God, but love did fuel the mission of God. So we've lived so much of our lives in American Christendom kind of confused about what the mission of God is. And friends, I don't think we need to live confused about the mission of God anymore. See, Paul gets really, really clear about what the mission of God is. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again, Paul is commenting on the implications of the cross. But, but he starts by saying this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, she or he is a, a new creation. You have a new identity. The cross declares you the reconciled beloved. That's who you are. That's who I am. You are the reconciled beloved. You are a new creation, a new reality. You can be 100% crystal clear about what God thinks of you because of the cross. You are the reconciled beloved. And oftentimes we end our Bible memorization projects right there. If anyone's Christ, he's a new creation. The old has come, the new has, or the old has, gone, has gone, the new has come. While we end our memorization there, Paul actually continues to write a letter to the Corinthian community. You want, to, you want to know what he said next? He says, you who are new creation have been given a distinct ministry. It's the ministry of reconciliation. 
You've been given a job. You've been saved into an adventure. And so you, whose identity is reconciled, beloved, go and live as beloved reconcilers in the world. If restoration is the mission of God, then peacemaking is the vocation of God's people. It's not an add-on to our faith. It's actually central to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so if God waged a decisive peace in Jesus, friends, that peace becomes real when you and I join God in mending the divides in ourselves, in our relationships, in our systems, and in our world. So why do we live in such a divided world? I want to argue that part of the reason is we have abdicated our responsibility. We have turned away from the adventure that we've actually been saved into. Now, how do we join God in mending the divides? Let me get to the right screen. There! That's the question we're trying to answer in this book. How do we join God in mending the divides? How do we follow in the ways of the Prince of Peace such that broken things get fixed in the world? But here's the bookmark version of it. The answer is as we become women and men who learn to see the humanity, dignity, and image of God in others. As we become women and men who learn to see the pain and the plight, as we learn to see our own contributions to what's broken, broken things start to get fixed. But then as we, as we dare to immerse into the radical center of pain, into the radical center of injustice, into the radical center of conflict, not to win but to restore, not with tools to destroy but with curiosity and compassion, as we choose to contend in costly and creative ways, we will actually join God in restoring the world and ushering in a brand new world. Because friends, we have a resurrected one. He's the Prince of Peace who says in Revelation 21, 3, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus doesn't say I made all things new or will make all things new. The resurrected one says I am making all things new. How do you think Jesus is doing that? Through us, in Bend, Oregon, in the streets of our neighborhood, in our homes, on behalf of the marginalized, we get to actually join God in mending the divides here in this place around the country and ultimately around the world. You see, as we join God in mending the divides, we literally get to participate in ushering in a new world. And friends, that's a, that's a world where brothers and sisters are no longer killing their brothers and sisters. It's a world where refugees are no longer getting in boats. It's a world where migrants are no longer hiding in fear in the, in the shadows of our neighborhoods. The world that God is making right now and that we get to be a part of ushering in is a world where addiction no longer has power, where kids are no longer trapped in systems without families, where women and children are no longer exploited for the pleasures of men, and where human beings are no longer trapped in cages. That's the world that God is actually making right now and that we get to be a part of ushering in as we follow the Prince of Peace in this way. The world that God is making is a world where capitalism no longer trumps compassion. Did you hear that? The world that God is making is a world where capitalism no longer trumps compassion, where consumerism no longer trumps generosity, and where my flourishing no longer trumps yours. That's the world God's making. We get to be a part of ushering it in as we follow the Prince of Peace. 
Because remember, friends, it was actually Jesus who said this in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. He's the one who used the word. Blessed are the women and the men who spend their lives mending the divides. They're the ones who will be called daughters and sons of God. And so this morning, as we come to the table, we don't come to the table dragging our feet as if this is some kind of funeral dirge. We don't come mourning. We come celebrating. Why? Because this table, it reminds us that we are the reconciled beloved. And so as you take this gluten-free body, and as you dip it into delicious local Oregon wine, Remember again that you are the reconciled beloved. But also understand that with this table, we're actually taking in calories. This table isn't just a a, a moment where we remember how great it is that God waged peace in Jesus and it worked. It's a moment where we are fed and then fueled to live as beloved reconcilers in the world. So as you come to the table... I want to invite you to take the the bread and dip it in the wine and literally hear yourself say, I am the reconciled beloved and I choose to be a beloved reconciler. Let's pray together. Spirit, that, um, that you who have roamed untamed among us for the last hour would galvanize the sweet truth that the cross is about restoration and it changes everything for me and should change everything for the world. So as we come to your table in these moments, help us, give us the courage to embrace our identity and our vocation, our destiny of peacemaking. It's in the name of the Prince of Peace that I pray. Amen.